sundown towns, a place black people across the US have been told to avoid like the plague. Some would rather pretend that they don't exist, burning and destroying evidence that these places thrive to begin with, while others can never forget the atrocities committed after dark. Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, a semi-weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about sundown towns with a slight focus on Cullman, Alabama. We'll also mention quite a few other sundown towns along the way, and you'll see why I wanted to talk about Coleman in particular in just a bit. Before we get into it, this episode is going to feature a lot of racism, violence, and other things of that nature. So if it upsets you, I recommend skipping today's episode. Let's begin by discussing what a sundown town is, where they come from, and before we talk about how sundown towns exist in the modern day, let's get into it. After slavery and the Civil War ended, black people began to move across the United States. Many remained in the South, and once Reconstruction ended, Southern states set up a system that looked a lot like slavery, the Jim Crow laws. Under these laws that were named after a black minstrel show character, black people couldn't vote and wouldn't be accommodated at restaurants, parks, hotels, schools, or just about anywhere really that was used by white people. Black codes were, simply put, a legal way to put black citizens into indentured servitude and control them. And since former Confederate soldiers could work as police officers and judges, it made it incredibly difficult for any black citizens to fight against the system or win any kind of court case. The ABHM, America's Black Holocaust Museum, writes how this mindset spread across the entire US. Most Americans have no idea how much race relations worsened between 1890 and the 1930s, and not just in the South. In fact, black Americans were the targets of racial violence and discrimination in the North, East, and West as well. Still, there was a greater opportunity for family supporting jobs and a better life outside the South, so millions of blacks left in one of the largest immigrations in history. This is known as the Great Migration, and it transformed America. For example, African-Americans reached every county of Montana. More than 400 lived in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, City neighborhoods across the country were fairly integrated too, even if the black inhabitants were often servants or gardeners for white neighbors. Between 1890 and the 1930s, however, all of this changed. By 1930, although its white population had increased by 75%, Michigan's Upper Peninsula was home to only 331 African-Americans, and 180 of them were inmates of the Marquette State Prison. 11 Montana counties had no blacks at all. Across the country, city neighborhoods grew more and more segregated. Predominantly white communities between 1890 and 1960 actively discouraged blacks from settling there. In its most blatant form, signs would be posted at the city limits. In Alex, Arkansas in the 1930s, their sign read, N-word, don't let the sun go down on you in Alex. While others read, whites only after dark. These towns would also use discriminatory housing covenants to ensure that no non-white people could purchase or rent a home. Legal documents for Chevy Chase, Maryland read that any person of Negro blood or any person of the Semitic race was forbidden to buy or lease property. I'm not at all surprised that these communities were sometimes anti-Semitic as well. Small towns would keep out black people, Jews, Catholics, Greeks, Italians, Indians, and even trade unionists and gays. 
Businesses that served black customers or hired black employees would be boycotted, and postcards from these towns would say things like, a good place to live, no Negroes, proud of their racial exclusion. Violence too was used to keep black people out of these sundown towns. African-Americans that lingered in these towns, even in the day would experience harassment, threats, arrest, and beatings. According to blackpass.org, an online encyclopedia about African-American and global African history, it was not uncommon for black motorists passing through these communities to be followed by police or local residents to the city limits. In extreme cases, hostility towards African-Americans resulted in extrajudicial killing. The lynching of two black teenagers in Marion, Indiana in 1930, for instance, resulted in the town's 200 black residents moving away, never to return. The rise of sundown towns made it difficult and dangerous for blacks to travel long distances by car. In 1930, for instance, 44 of the 89 counties along the famed Route 66 from Chicago to Los Angeles featured no motels or restaurants and prohibited blacks from entering after dark. In response, Victor H. Green, a postal worker from Harlem, compiled the Negro Motorist Green Book, a guide to recommendations that served black travelers. The guide was published from 1936 to 1966 and at its height of popularity was used by 2 million people. An Atlantic article that discusses the roots of Route 66 also addresses this. While for many, Route 66 is seen as the road of dreams or the mother road and the essence of the American dream itself, for others, it's a nightmare. After all, Route 66 started out in Illinois, a state that had 150 sundown towns alone. Before Route 66 was even connected and enshrined, the roads that formed it linked one atrocity to the next. Their article reads, Take example, one violent night in 1906 in Springfield, Missouri, which would soon become the birthplace of Route 66. Though the road starts out in Chicago, the route was officially designated as 66 in Springfield. During a grisly lynching on Easter weekend, a vigilante white mob dragged Horace Duncan and Fred Coker to the town square, hanged them, burned their bodies while thousands watch, and then distributed their body parts among the crowd as keepsakes. In 1921, the Tulsa race riot erupted in the Greenwood district of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was one of the nation's most devastating acts of terrorism against African-Americans. Greenwood was an unusually vibrant community of successful black entrepreneurs, doctors, and lawyers. Booker T. Washington called it Black Wall Street, and it was arguably the wealthiest black neighborhood in the South. But after a young black man was wrongfully accused of assaulting a white woman, an angry lynch mob broke out. Long-held jealousies over black prosperity and Greenwood's wealth ignited a riot. The white mob set the neighborhood on fire. After 16 hours, at least 300 people had died, 35 blocks of the Greenwood district had burned to the ground, and more than 10,000 black residents had been left homeless. Many sundown towns seem to have deliberately hid these chapters in their history. And according to Black Past, there are often few archival records in these towns that precisely described how they excluded blacks. Still, the evidence that we do have about these sundown towns and the way they treated people is horrifying. Keep in mind, these sundown towns weren't just all white towns, but towns that were all white on purpose, actively keeping black people out by any means necessary. The definition of a sundown town changes slightly depending on who you're speaking to. Some say it's a place where blacks were actively forced out and that housing discrimination alone doesn't make a sundown town. Others say there isn't much of a difference as many places where blacks couldn't buy a house were also places where they wouldn't be safe. Lowen, a sociologist and author of the book, Sundown Towns, who researched their history extensively says that, quote, I think suburbs tended to have a little more finesse in their racism, but I'm not going to back off, end quote. 
And for the record, Lowen is widely considered an expert on this topic about sundown towns. So expect to see his name again quite frequently throughout this episode. And of course, as we've seen more and more in recent years, these sundown towns had pseudoscience on their side. Eugenics proved in their minds anyway, that black people were brutes in order to justify slavery and their behavior. At times, entire counties went sundown. In Mississippi County, Arkansas, for example, a red line that was originally a road surveyor mark defined a deadline beyond which African-Americans shouldn't travel to the West. And this was effectively cutting off over 2000 square miles. Yet, as opposed to the learning about this disturbing chapter in US history, some students are taught a very different version of events. When Lowen began teaching as a university professor of sociology in Mississippi in 1968, his students told him that they thought reconstruction was the period right after the civil war when blacks took over the government of the Southern states, but since they were newly freed slaves, they just screwed it up and white folks had to take control again. Lowen said that upon hearing this, his heart sank, and that was a glimpse of just how twisted America's history had become. A piece of that history is of course, the sundown town. Although this is truly only a very, very brief history of what sundown towns are, I want to start to focus on Coleman specifically. It's believed that they are still a sundown town to this day. And so using them as an example, let's take a look at how a sundown town has changed over the years into the modern day. Coleman, Alabama was one of these sundown towns. It displayed a sign that read N-word, don't let the sun go down on your head in this town. Some version used a different body part, such as the back versus the head, but the message is essentially the same. One article written by Ben Winham in Tuscaloosa News says that though he and some former Coleman residents say they never saw such a sign growing up in Northern Alabama, the internet is full of stories to the contrary. One person wrote that his wife told him about a sign saying, welcome to Coleman with a subhead that read, N-word, don't let the sun set behind your back. Another claimed there was a huge billboard right at the Coleman city limits on highway 278 saying, N-word, don't let the sun set on your butt in this town. That was on display as late as 1989. A picture of a Klansman and a burning cross accompanied the message or so the anonymous poster claimed. Charles Tisdale, publisher of the Jackson Miss Advocate wrote in a 2000 column that Coleman posted a sign for many, many years on its main street that read, N-word read and run. If you can't read, just run. Another writer claimed the same message was on a series of signs modeled on the old Burma shave advertisements posted one after the other on a road leading to Coleman. One of the internet authors even claimed that though Coleman's sundown sign was dismantled years ago, it remains in storage in the basement of a county courthouse. The widely differing accounts led me to lean towards thinking that the sundown sign in Coleman was just an urban or country myth. Even Lowen's book, which identifies Coleman as one of the cities with a national reputation as a sundown town, its percentage of black residents in 2000 was 0.7%, according to the US census, does not mention a sign. And this is what I and Ben Winham find so interesting about Coleman. It feels like no two people can agree on the town. What seems to be generally agreed upon though, is that while sometimes like Arab Alabama wouldn't allow blacks to enter during the day, Coleman needed black day workers. According to Lowen, the author we mentioned earlier, that resulted in a community about 20 miles south of Coleman that was virtually all African-American. He wrote that it existed to house the black labor pool that was excluded from living in Coleman. Maids, janitors, handymen, and blacks and whites alike called it the colony. The Coleman Tribune wrote an article about the colony in 2015 and seemed to twist the narrative about what this community actually was. In their article, they claim, 
It is believed that the colony Alabama was originally settled after the Civil War during Reconstruction and following the emancipation or freedom of slaves. The people that came to live in the area now known as Colony had probably been freed slaves from the old settlement of Baltimore, Alabama. It is Coleman County's only African-American community and in its early days, it was considered a safe haven for African-Americans in the Deep South. Nowhere in this article does it mention that black people weren't allowed to live in other places of Coleman County. Instead, this article makes the area sound welcoming when it was anything but. In fact, a former hospital administrator from Coleman said that they believe the sign stood until about 1972, as well as a graduate student from Coleman. Some stories about Coleman read as follows. My mother told us that the drugstore where Greyhound buses used to stop in Coleman had no black facilities at all. Blacks riding on the main bus line from Nashville to Birmingham and Point South would step off in Coleman to look for restrooms only to be turned back. And mothers could be heard explaining to their crying children that they would have to wait until farther down the road. If you want to read the quote in its entirety, of course, my sources will always be available. While I normally try not to include too much anecdotal evidence since this chapter of US history is often hidden, anecdotal evidence is at times all we have. Despite a lot of the information we have about sundown towns being based on oral tradition, experts on the topic such as Lowen have proven themselves to be credible. He devotes almost an entire chapter to explaining his research, detailing his rationale for defining sundown towns, laying out his statistical methods and revealing how he triangulated oral history, written sources and census data to arrive at a confirmation. So when he reports that he's personally verified the existence of roughly 1000 sundown towns between 1890 and 1930, you believe him. And because he pairs that finding with an analysis of the history, causes and patterns of sundown towns that shows that they were in many ways as logical as often as violent, an outgrowth of American racism as lynching, he ultimately makes a strong case that sundown towns were a significant feature of the American landscape. As is often the case when the subject of race, the relative lack of hard evidence ultimately becomes part of the story rather than the hindrance to it. Given all of this, the New York Times write that Coleman's KKK created a racial deterrence so strong that even to this day, a district judge at the Coleman courthouse says that black people are very reluctant to come to court in Coleman because of their reputation. Coleman was, and to many still is, known as the racist white bigot county in Alabama, which considering Alabama's history in particular is saying something. One clipping from the Free Press said that in Skipperville, Alabama, 1899, a group called the Rectifying Band would send letters to black people, telling them to move on and warn landlords against employing black people. The newspaper clipping reads, the Negroes are said to be thoroughly frightened and preparing to move. The band is variously estimated to be from 100 to 200 strong. Their plan of procedure is a novel one. It is said that they profess to be marching under the white supremacy banner. Police statement is said to favor this new solution of the problem. Arab Alabama is a part of Marshall and Coleman County, also certainly seems ready to forget their history. At least they don't seem to address the harsh reality of it. One article from Arab's town website writes that they are proud of the past and looking to the future all while saying that Indians gave up their land instead of Native Americans that were forced to relinquish their land and not making any mention of having been a sundown town. Even if these are painful chapters in US history, that doesn't mean we should ignore them. Lowen discusses Arab in his book and explains that if a black person did live in a sundown town, they were an exception and would at times purposefully need to display strong but not harmful personalities to be more likable. 
Lowen says that the people that were exceptions would encourage white people to call them the N-word and would often dress exceptionally well or badly and play a clownish role. Essentially, these black people that did find themselves living in these sundown towns had to be liked by all and felt pressured to enlighten those around them because if people didn't like them, then they were in danger. All it takes is one white person willing to attack Lowen rights because other white people were sure going to defend a white person over a black person than risk being called an N-word lover. Alabama was definitely infamous for racism, but let's take a look and see what happened to sundown towns in modern day. And if we have a sponsor for today's episode, which I'm feeling, I don't know if there will be one, this is where it's gonna be. If not, let's continue on. You've got back-to-back meetings, errands to run and chores to get taken care of. What's the secret to clearing everything on your to-do list? Well, maybe it's a little help from DoorDash. You can get dinner, household essentials, and everything on your grocery list delivered. Have you ever gone shopping at the grocery store and then when you get home, you realized you may have forgotten onions or garlic or whatever it is to finish completing your dinner? Well, DoorDash gives you that extra hand to help you out. And with over 300,000 partners, you can support your neighborhood go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Popeye's, Chipotle, or the Cheesecake Factory. And damn, I wish the Cheesecake Factory delivered to me. I'm so jealous right now. Y'all can get Cheesecake Factory delivered. For a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code PRISM. That's 25% off up to a $10 value and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the app store and enter code PRISM. Don't forget, code PRISM for 25% off your first order with DoorDash. Subject to change, terms apply. Even if the signage doesn't exist, the racial tension and discrimination is still present in many small towns across the US. In Vienna, Illinois, some white residents say race isn't a big problem out there and never has been really. Meanwhile, black residents such as Nicholas Lewis say, every time I walk around, eyes are on me. Places like Vienna are an open secret of racial segregation. The Columbia Daily Tribune wrote in 2020, every time you come into town or you go into a gas station or in a store, people look at you, said Victoria Vaughn, a biracial 17 year old who has been coming to Vienna for years to visit her white grandparents. You can feel them looking at you, feel them staring, she said. I've never had anyone say anything racist to me in Vienna, but I've definitely felt the way they felt about me. She was in Vienna on a recent Saturday to join a rally organized after a group of Vienna high school students created a social media account that included the phrase, hate black people in its title. Vaughn and her grandmother were among the 50 or so people who turned out for the rally along with about 25 counter protesters. At first things went well. Protesters and counter protesters prayed together. They talked calmly about race, but not for long. Bullshit, an older white man shouted at Vaughn after she said black people aren't treated equally. They get the same as the white people get. Vaughn said Vienna's white residents may not see racial issues around them because they are far more subtle today. Until you live in a black or brown person's body, you're not going to understand, she said. You have to know somebody who lived it or live it yourself to truly understand. Vienna's racial history goes back to 1954 of the arrest of a 31-year-old black resident, Thomas Lee Lantham, who was accused of brutally beating an elderly white woman with a soft drink bottle and trying to rape her grandmother. A few weeks after his arrest, Lantham escaped from jail. Dozens of armed men burned down Vienna's black community. The 1950 census showed 54 black people living in Vienna. In 2000, it showed one. 
It's unfortunate that it seems like these small towns are unwilling to learn, listen, and not ignore the painful past around them. Even if openly racist laws aren't legal, it doesn't mean everything has changed and that racism simply just vanished. And it's not just in the South by any means. Sundown communities are predominant in the Midwest, West, and North as well. Author Candace Taylor, who wrote the book, Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America, claims that sundown towns were ways the North and West patrolled and monitored race without having the colored only or whites only signs. Travelers had no way of knowing where the sundown towns were located because there wasn't a map until James Lowen researched and wrote the book, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension in American Racism, she says. Lowen discovered that many of the sundown towns would burn signs and that there's no official record that some existed at all, which shows people continue to erase the dirty parts of our history that we don't want to remember, Taylor says. Sundown towns are just like any other town in America, she says. I have been to a couple that still seem to hold on to their racist heritage, and they have a large number of white supremacist groups. These sundown towns are still overwhelmingly white, and according to some studies, there's definitely a link between sundown towns and contemporary racial equality. One such study argues that one consequence of sundown towns is that modern day residents that live there are largely unaware of its history and assume that the massive division between whites and blacks is natural. In other cases, such as Kenilworth, Illinois, people claim that Kenilworth is just too expensive for black families. And that's why only six years ago, they didn't have a single black household. They are the richest suburb of Chicago, yet after Lowen did his research, he found that there are 7,000 black households that make more money than the median family does in Kenilworth. They could move there in terms of economics and even move into the larger houses, but they don't. Still, this black people aren't rich enough trope persists, even when this economic gap might not be the reason why black people simply don't feel welcome in these communities. And this is a prime example of why we shouldn't burn the sundown signs, but preserve and learn from them so that the people living there today recognize that black people weren't allowed to settle there and that their absence from sundown towns was due to prejudice. Places that are all white on purpose help breed and support negative perceptions of black people and lead to entitlement and white privilege. In some cases, the people living there think they have a right to want to live in an all white community and therefore should be allowed to tell black people to go elsewhere. These racist attitudes lead to poverty disparities and protect white advantage. Sundown towns are especially still a problem for black drivers. And though I don't normally use Buzzfeed as a news source, a recent article does detail how recent and disturbing some interactions in these sundown towns can be. One hiker, Marco Williams, took to TikTok and claimed that last year in June, 2020, he planned a trip to visit the devil's bathtub in Virginia. He says that it's in the middle of nowhere. And when he stopped to refuel and get snacks at a service station, he was told by the cashier to not be around after dark as he was in a sundown town. Now I can't verify that Marco really told this, but according to Lowen's database, at least 60 of Kentucky's 782 towns are believed to be or previously were considered sundown towns. Lowen explains that it's incredibly important to chronicle this part of a town's history because not only is it important to remember our history, but states can have second generation sundown town problems as well. Take Ferguson, Missouri, for example. Ferguson was briefly a sundown town between 1940 to 1960. Lowen says the black population was thrown out by the white population and was enforced by an overwhelmingly white police force, which would ticket and harass black motorists for passing through. He says, Well, by the time Ferguson had the, shall we say, riots or demonstrations for which they are now famous, Ferguson was almost two thirds black, but it still had that leftover from the sundown town day police force. 
So that's an example of a second generation sundowntown problem. Jacoby Williams is a professor of African-American and African diaspora studies at Indiana University and specializes in social justice, politics, and civil rights. He explains the relationship policing had to sundown towns during their heyday and how it relates to the distrust of policing we're seeing today. So for example, if a person, these are anecdotal, but these are real lived experiences, a person of color is in a particular location that's classified as a sundown town and the people of that community attack that person, the police will not arrest them. In fact, they may arrest the person who was attacked. Today, this is something that can easily translate to law enforcement harassing people of color or on a lesser scale of things, dirty looks between mixed race couples and things of that nature. But what about Coleman? Are they still as bad as ever? Well, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Some residents have claimed in recent years that it's unfortunate that they're known as a sundown town because they're progressing into the 21st century. A Juneteenth celebration at Veterans Memorial Park in June, 2020 was hosted by the Committee for a Better Coleman. A member of this community, A.C. Potee said that, if we don't do it now, it's never going to happen. If we don't have a good turnout from the black community, that's understandable, but we are going to show them it's safe, it's all good. However, even if the community wants to show black people that their neighborhood is safe, they have a long way to go. Hansville police reported that they got calls from neighbors who were unhappy the event was taking place at all. Not to mention there's been disturbing acts in Coleman that many haven't forgotten, like when KKK members left candy and recruitment flyers outside Coleman homes in 2014. Sheriff Matt Gentry said he didn't believe someone from Coleman was dispersing the literature because based on his research, this recruitment was taking place in other states too, like Virginia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. I'm a supporter of our first amendment. I believe in freedom of speech, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do it, Gentry said. If you want to stand out on the street corner and pass out any literature, hey, that's your first amendment right but you do not go into people's private property and pass out literature. You do not throw literature in people's yards and you do not go into people's vehicles and put literature in their vehicles. That's violating the law, Gentry continued. A North Carolina number was listed on the flyer, so Gentry's theory seems to hold water. Only a couple years later though, in 2016, KKK members once again began recruiting in Coleman County in the town of Arab. An article from January said that for the fourth time in three months, KKK propaganda turned up outside of homes and local businesses. Some said this shows that there's as much racism as there used to be in Arab, while Mayor Bob Jocelyn said the city doesn't have any racial issues. And I would argue that that's quite a bold statement to make when KKK propaganda incidents are happening pretty much every month, quite frankly. In late May, 2020, as George Floyd protests swept the nation and were in full swing, about 25 BLM protesters gathered in Depot Park. They waved signs reading, Black Lives Matter, I Can't Breathe, Be the Change, and other slogans. However, according to the Coleman Tribune, as the protesters gathered, rumors started to spread that these peaceful protesters were among instigators of riots that damaged 30 businesses in Nashville that previous Saturday. Rather than confirm this or report them, a group of counter-protesters, some openly armed, assembled at businesses near the park, saying they'd protect them from any violence. The reaction from these counter-protesters is not only alarming, but so is their language. Jonathan Bishop, one of the counter-protesters commented, quote, where are the signs saying white lives matter? Cops are not targeting black people like they're saying. That was one cop in a uniform. It's not the whole force, end quote. The trouble is that even if it isn't every single cop that targets black people, enough do that there is a massive racial disparity in police stops and police encounters. Even after analyzing 100 million traffic stops in the US, the evidence clearly points to black and Hispanic drivers being targeted by police more often than white drivers. 
there's so much evidence to back this up that it's really hard to deny as long as you believe in science and factual-based evidence, but this is something that some people still want to dispute. Now, there are still some that want to see the good in Coleman though, instead of this ignorance. Miss Alabama, Alexandra Flanagan said that in 2021, that she as a black person did face racism growing up in Coleman County. She adds that it's still home to her and that they truly have come a long way. Even so, given their history as a sundown town, I can't blame black people for potentially not wanting to live there or associate with the place. Lowen himself noted that there were once 43 black people out of a population of 1300 in the 1880s, yet that number dwindled. And now as of the 2000 census, there was 27 out of 13,271. While I hope that Coleman moves in the right direction and becomes more accepting as of today, their reputation lingers. Given the disturbing history of these places, it's no wonder that, especially in recent years, they've entered into politics and become equated with Trump supporters and rallies. Some say that sundown towns have been in massive favor of Trump and that his sundown foundations shouldn't be underestimated. Research shows that it was former sundown towns in Wisconsin that played a decisive role in titling the state in Trump's favor. In addition, Trump won the 2016 election by a landslide in Coleman. While Alabama has been called the reddest of the red states, what makes this alarming isn't just Trump's victory, but the dangerous conspiracies that have taken root among the people there. Fans at Trump rallies continually refer to him as president with one woman telling Insider that she believes he never left the White House and he's the 19th president of the Republic. Asked what she hoped of Trump would talk about during his speech, she responded, I want him to address when he's going to come forth and say, I am so that everybody will wake up and we can get this country back. The Constitutional Republic of 1776. The Alabama Democratic Party took aim at Republicans after this rally and stated that instead of finding solutions to problems, the political leaders of the Alabama Republican Party spent their Saturday worshiping former President Trump while he continued to spew lies about the 2020 election. Donald Trump's legacy is one of sowing division, amplifying conspiracy theorists about COVID, trying to overturn a fair election and increasing our national debt with massive tax breaks for millionaires and billionaires, the statement read. Of course, not everything Trump said was music to Coleman's ears. In fact, he was booed when he told them to get vaccines, contradicting his past stance in regards to COVID and vaccines. Many in Coleman don't seem to take the vaccine seriously as after this super spreader rally, five schools had to close due to rising COVID rates. It doesn't really seem like a coincidence to me that these predominantly white and notoriously sundown town communities would be more open to conspiracies and would be the place the KKK chooses to send their recruitment flyers. Even if everyone in Coleman doesn't feel that way, there's undeniably massive racial tensions among these places. Unfortunately, with the history of these towns and how unwelcome black people reportedly feel there, even just in present day, I'm not sure that's going to change anytime soon. But before I end today's episode, I really do wanna thank someone who this entire episode would not be possible without, and that's James Lowen, the historian and author. He's been referenced multiple times throughout this script and his tireless work talking and writing about these sundown towns was genuinely invaluable to my own research. James passed away literally 10 days before this episode was written. So it seems really odd not to thank him and his entire legacy that he's provided for future historians. So thank you all for making it to another episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you learned something new today and I'll see you in the next one. Bye. Bye.